Welcome to episode two of the Consultancy Business Podcast. I'm Phil Lewis, and this is the podcast that helps you build the consultancy nobody else can. Value for money. As independent consultants, we understand what happens when we offer poor value for money. We lose clients or we fail to make the sale. But how can we be sure we're offering best value to our clients? It's tricky. That's because, as we'll hear in this episode, value is in the eye of the beholder. I always start with, what's the problem? What's the work to be done? I've also got to marry that with the context of where I'm working. And yes, then that becomes a what's realistic and what's possible with budget, attention, maturity of the organisation as well. That's David Ray, Group People Director at Publishing and Magazine's giant Immediate Media. More from him later on, on how he gets value out of relationships with consultants. Now, I've been travelling this road of independent consultancy for a while, and I've met some exceptional specialists along the way. In this podcast, we invite some of these people along to share their experiences and insights. Hello, my name is Tina Fijan and I'm a marketing procurement consultant. Tina works with marketing agencies, consultancies and their clients to ensure that everyone concerned is getting great value from their relationships. Her field is mostly marketing, but her insights apply to anyone trying to sell services. Tina, lovely to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Phil. Nice to be here. Just imagine that I'd never come across the world of marketing or never come across the world of procurement and we were sat at a bar together, how would you describe your work to somebody who's completely uninitiated? The way I try and explain it is, if someone like John Lewis, a retailer, is looking for a new advertising agency, they would want help in finding uh, the right sort of agency, and they would like to then make sure they're getting value for money. And my role is to help uh, research the market and suggest a number of different agency stroke suppliers for their need. And then I would be in charge of looking at all the commercial side, so benchmarking their rates and fees and looking at the contract. So it's uh, sourcing suppliers, sourcing the right suppliers for the client and then making sure they have got best value for money for their budgets. So you talk about value for money. And I think if we talk about selling any kind of knowledge-based service, whether it's advertising agency work or whether it's consulting, strategy, creative thinking, whatever you want to call it, we're all in the world of selling what you might call intangibles, right? So ideas and strategies and solutions, if you like that word. And you talk about working with clients to make sure they're getting value for money. So I'm interested to explore with you, well, firstly, how is it you go about helping clients to ensure that they're comparing apples with apples? And also, how do you, in a more concrete sense, actually make sure that you are getting value for money for a client? Or how do you make sure a client's getting value for money? Because what is being sold, well, it isn't widgets, it's ideas and all the rest of it. So how do you compare and how do you make sure in the end there is a good value exchange going on? Yeah, it's a great question because what does determine value for money? Uh, and basically it's that balance of cost and quality of service. And I apply that both with the work that I do with clients, but also in what I do for, for my clients, because obviously I have, you know, 
a day rate stroke, I have a fee. So I apply the same principle. So it's those, the components that make that up. And I've had a recent instance, I've been working with clients in the States and the commercial model in the States, e.g. the hourly rates and the fees are astronomical compared to the UK marketplace. And yeah, that is really tricky because, you know, I feel that in that market in the US compared to the UK market, you know, the value for money argument often gets a bit lost. And I've seen hourly rates. I mean, in the UK, you know, a good hourly rate for, you know, a creative agency is £450 an hour for, you know, one the, you know, an ECD or the chief strategy officer. I've seen some recently where the hourly rate is $1,000. And then having that discussion with the client about what does constitute value. So there's a number of components that I would look at both in how I assess agency fees, but also when I'm talking to clients about my fee and for people that listen to this podcast is, one, I would look at things like the experience. You know, from from my example, you know, I have got 30 years experience in marketing procurement. I'm an expert. I have got a niche. Again, you can apply that to when you're looking at agencies. I advised an agency this week. They're more of a consultancy and they're quite unique in what they do. So their pricing model, they have really gone down to minute detail of doing fees for clients. And it's, you know, three hours of this person, two hours of that person. And they've done, say, a digital playbook, as an example. And they've charged the client, say, £40,000. It's actually cost them £100,000 to deliver it, for example, and trying to understand and work with them as to the value that they're delivering for the client and how they perhaps cost differently. So should they look at um, a fixed cost model, for example? So I think you've got experience, you've got expertise. So again, people listening to your podcast is, you know, put a value on what you are delivering for the client. Reputation, you know, as you rightly said, Phil, people buy from people. And again, that's very much true of when I'm sourcing agencies is, okay, who is the CEO? Who's the chief strategy officer? And I'm using sort of creative agencies as a big example because they're more high profile, but people want to buy from those people. Who are the hot agencies, for example? Um, who are the experts in experiential? Who are the experts in PR? So what the reputation is, what the skill sets are. Obviously, that's really, really key. Again, buying an agency or selling your own services, the way you communicate, communicate those skills. Um, and then two last things, problem solving, because obviously that's what, you know, the, the scope of work or the brief is. It is sorting out a problem, supporting a problem, looking at the issue, what your abilities are. And me making judgments, be it with, you know, looking at an agency or my own services, how can I help that client or how can that agency help the client sort out their business need? And lastly, obviously, the fit with the client's needs and objectives. So I think it's experience, expertise, reputation, skills, problem solving ability and the fit with needs and objectives. And it is that balance of cost and the quality of the service that determines value for money. Am I right in thinking then that, because what I, what I heard in what you just said, Tina, was this is equal balance of art and science, right? So it feels to me like if you take those things, if you take reputation, expertise, experience, skill sets, problem solving, cultural fit, what you're doing is weighing up all of those relative to other providers who are available in the market. And then you are weighing them up through the lens of what that client wants and needs. 
and ultimately reaching a judgment on, as you say, cost and quality, but also I would imagine what feels like it's going to be the right blend of all of those different factors you just talked to for the client as well. And then reaching a balanced judgment on, okay, this feels like the right relationship and this feels like we're in the ballpark of a fair amount of money. So there's some science in that, I would imagine, in terms of benchmarking and in terms of being able to really pull apart when you're talking about skill sets, for example, what skill sets actually is this provider offering and how credible are those skill sets. But then there's just nothing like experience, is there? The art of all of it in terms of weighing up those different factors and coming to a balanced view at the end. Is that a fair analysis or would you challenge me yeah, on that? Yeah, I think that I think that is a very fair summary. And I think I didn't particularly answer your point about how you compare apples to apples. And that is really hard, you know, be it selecting an agency or be it if a client is procuring consultants such as ourselves is how can you compare like for like? So that's obviously where there's a degree of science in there in terms of, okay, you know, is it the fees? Is it the number of years experience? Is that their expertise? Um, But also, you know, you are paying for that, that, that roundedness, that sort of whole ability to deliver um, for the client. And that is wrapped up in the ex- in, 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 in the art side, isn't it, I think. Um, but people do buy from people. And, you know, if you remember a few years, you know, quite a few years ago when the consultancies, big consultancies were buying up agencies, you know, Accenture buying Calm or the agency market was all dread and fear, you know, we, we're going to lose out at the fear of the consultants. That hasn't happened because there is still the expertise, the knowledge, the, the specialisms um, in the marketplace that have enabled clients to still have a wide-ranging uh, amount of suppliers to select from. Yes, the consultants, big consultancy firms are quite clever at upselling and going at CEO level, but you still cannot beat that exact balance that you've, you've mentioned, and people still buy that. Mm. I also heard in what you said that you know, clients are still after specialisms. I think people listening to this podcast might be constantly looking around going, who do I benchmark fees against? And what I heard in what you said before was something like, well, benchmarking is important because in the end, clients want to be paying what you might call a fair market rate but that there is some good degree of flexibility around what clients might be prepared to pay for the right level of expertise and experience proportionate to the brief that they've got. And I always find myself wondering, to what extent does price really play an important part in decision-making, or do you think price is just one factor in amongst all of those factors we were talking about and actually price is a bit more flexible than people think sometimes based on all the other factors you've talked to I think it depends on the client I think it depends on where they are financially I think it depends on their authority have they got the power within the budget so I'd like to think that if they are a fair client they have come to you because they know you've got an expertise to deliver. They have got a degree of budget in place, but they have got, as you say, flexibility within that. I mean, when I cost up, you know, 
I think I think it's hard bit of consultant. You have to be confident in your ability and you have to know your market rate. And I think a lot of consultants don't always do that. If they have come to you, you know, and invariably, as we've said already, people buy from people. If they have come to you, they know that they want you. You have got the expertise, the experience, the reputation. And it takes guts, but you have the confidence of your pricing model in what you do. But I think you do need to have a degree of flexibility. You know, when I meet people that are starting up and want advice, if they've got a mortgage and they've got kids and they're the breadwinner, I think consultancy life can be very challenging because, you know, they, you know, don't want a discount and they don't want to be flexible and I need to earn this and then they get 90 days payment terms. So I think people with more experience, you can be more flexible in your commercial model. But I would say the one thing I would do is make sure you are benchmarking and be that informal chats in people outside of your sector, people inside your sector, but just have an awareness of how they're costing and then understand the people you're dealing with, what power, what authority they have with their budgets, but be flexible. And from a negotiation point of view, you can always go down. So always go in a bit high because you can always go down. <laughs> I think there's um, one of the things um, we'll be doing in the consultancy business, what we are doing in the consultancy business is helping people a little bit with benchmarking because certainly in independent consulting, in certain contexts, in certain sectors, perhaps a bit less so in marketing, but certainly in other ones, it can be very, very hard to have anybody who's willing to disclose anything around how to price and what they've learned about pricing over the years. And that's something that we are doing for our members is just enabling some of those more informal conversations that, to your point, do actually help you understand how other people think about and approach some of this stuff. I think that's great, Phil, if you can do that within an informal environment and help your members understand their value, but also how to negotiate, how to do the proposals and how to negotiate. Mm. One thing I was really keen to explore with you, Tina, was around was around things like payment by results and you know and all that kind of that kind of stuff, which comes up a lot in consulting. You know, my sense of it, and I'd be really keen to hear from you on this. My sense of it is that a lot of the time, what clients need is certainty around budget. So the idea of either a I'm going to just give you this very high fixed fee and not actually explain where it comes from. That might give certainty, but it doesn't necessarily give confidence. Or I want paying partly on the basis of results, which actually might communicate confidence, but doesn't actually give the client certainty is really difficult for clients to buy. Somebody said to me years ago, there are so many clients out there, Phil, who find it as easy or difficult to sign off £10,000 as they do to sign off a million pounds. And But when it's signed off, it's signed off. What they don't want is to sign off £10,000 with the idea of another £10,000 if it goes well or whatever. So I'm just really interested in your thoughts on that whole area of, I suppose it goes to pricing to value and it also goes to payment by results as well about how feasible that actually is for a lot of organisations. In the procurement sector, a performance-based fee bonus thing is usually on delivery of savings. 
And there are some, you know, generic procurement consultancies out there that say to clients, we'll come in and we want, we're going to save you 50% and we want 20% of that. But I do know there are general consultancy firms that pay to payment by results, which is percentage of savings. And obviously that's self-funded because actually if you save the client a million pounds and the deal is you get 20% of that, that's coming from the savings with my procurement hat on of agencies i i really like it and i think you know for years it's been in place with media because you know it's it's more tangible to audit you know we were spending five million pounds we're now spending four million or we're spending five million but getting six million pounds worth of coverage um and we've got a third party auditor company in place that's auditing that uh, and we tie that in with a client satisfaction survey which okay can be subjective but I really like it and I've seen some really innovative schemes where we've got agreement, you know, your profit margin is 20%, let's put 10% at risk, but there's an upside of another 10%. So potentially the agency can earn 30%, but you have to have those metrics in place. But you're exactly right is when it comes to agreeing it, the stakeholders, the internal marketing people get nervous because they've got a budget and they need to spend it that year. What do you mean we need to hold £50,000 over for next year? If I don't spend it, I'm going to lose it, which often is true, you know, having worked corporate side. You know, I've done a lot of pitches this year, a lot of, you know, big brands, uh, great agencies. And I've asked every single agency, what's your thoughts on performance ATV? And I've had some great answers back from agencies. Where does it fall down? Clients. We won't do it for year one. Hmm. We'll wait to year two. Um, so agencies have put some great insight into what the KPIs and what the metrics would be, but clients get nervous because they feel they have to spend their budget. So if you can sell it in, absolutely great, but I'd just be a, probably a bit more careful on the consultancy side down to agreeing the metrics uh, and taking away any subjectivity in those metrics. I really liked your point around where there is absolute clarity on cost savings. It makes sense that there could be some share of that revenue goes back to whoever is helping with the cost savings because it's so easy to prove that's the case and it's self-funding. And that also there is an opportunity for innovation in this space in general. But I also heard that there's going to be a degree of hand-holding needed with a lot of clients in order to build the confidence that it's not actually creating exposure for them internally by virtue of leaving them with, for example, unspent budget, which as we all know, then tends to get taken off them by the mothership later on down the line. So be brave, test it out, test it out with a brave client and just say, well, what about if we did it this way? But make sure, as we say, get those metrics and get those guarantees in place and hope the client doesn't leave in that period of the time you're working with them because then you're stuck if you haven't got it in contract and the place was like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. So that is the one danger. What are some of the common mistakes that you see suppliers making while pitching for work? Underestimating the fee in the first place. Then over-servicing, and I think we're all really, really guilty of that. And assuming that not one size fits all. I always think that underestimating is such a problem because you either then have to correct that with the client later on down the line and that can leave your client exposed or you're running the risk of a really serious loss on a piece of business which leaves your business exposed and actually can threaten the relationship from the other side. So this idea of, you know, winning business at all costs, it's like, well, 
that is a bill that's going to get paid at some point, isn't it? You know, under underestimating is actually a real problem from both sides of the table, it feels to me. Yeah, and, you know, I'm as guilty of it a few times. I mean, you learn through experience. When I worked agency side, there was a client that really, really screwed us to the ground. And the team never forgot it, you know. And one of the creators had to fly to New York and do a shoot all weekend, work all weekend, edit it and fly back on a Monday. And the whole agency knew that this client had screwed us. And so that current example, just even today, I did an email helping this third party. And I even put in, and all for free because the, the the person was like, oh, amazing, Tina, you know, thanks for your help. And I said, yeah, and all for free, exclamation mark. So um, even though I agreed it, I did agree it. I'm like, okay, that's fine. It's obviously not fine because I keep going on about it. I think it's a really good point. I mean, my sense of it is, has always been both as a supplier and as a client who has to pay people that we work with as well. My sense is you want to be paid fairly and you want to pay other people fairly or else there is actually some stuff being set up in the relationship there that's not good. I want people who I work with and I want my clients to feel that I'm motivated and we're really trying to get somewhere worthwhile together. And I think being paid fairly is actually an important part of that. Just two quick questions before we close out, Tina. If you had one piece of advice for consultants looking to sell their services into larger organisations based on 20 years of doing this kind of work. If you had one piece of advice, what would it be? Be confident. Know your value. Tina, if people want to talk with you about their needs, both client side and consulting side, where can they contact you? From my website, which on the Magic Chiefs called is tinafegent.com. So just a contact form, just uh, drop us a line on there. Great stuff. Thank you for joining us today, Tina. Thanks, Paul. Really enjoyed it. Good to chat to you. You're listening to the Consultancy Business Podcast with me, Phil Lewis. If Tina's points raise questions or concerns for you about how to price and sell your services, there's a load of additional input and support available at theconsultancybusiness.com. Our faculty and other independent consultants are also on hand to help. You can sign up at the website. Now, back to our main subject for this podcast, what it means to provide value for money in the eyes of your clients. And as always, our second guest is a client, someone who regularly hires and works with consultants, this time at one of the country's brightest publishing companies. My name's David Ray, and I'm the Group People Director at Immedia Media. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Very welcome. Lovely to be here. Particularly working in a world of people and culture, a lot of our, our job is both to help others right now, and for many years have felt this, to innovate and experiment and try new things. I think that is one of the biggest capabilities that everybody at every part of an organisation at every level should have. And then also for, for my own function, a people function, is a lot around innovation and doing things differently and in some ways sort of driven by a slight dissatisfaction of what we've all done before is not going to solve what we've got to do in the future. So um, a lot of my, yeah, a lot of my energy has been around innovation and experimenting, yeah. So if you think about the consultancies that you've worked with and maybe you're considering working with at the moment, what sort of factors have influenced, do influence your decision about whether or not to work with a given consultancy? 
I love a consultant or a or, or a kind of a consultancy that doesn't necessarily have a rule book or a kind of prescribed format that they just feel like they lift and shift to every client that they work with. So that it was kind of the first thing that came into my head there is somebody that's genuinely wanting to solve and work with us on the problems that we've got. And obviously there's experience as a consultant that they bring, but it's not this formulaic, I've got a deck ready to kind of take you through and that deck will solve your problems. They feel whether it does or doesn't. So I think another instant reaction to that question was values. Does that consultant consultancy have the same values as me? You know, sounds quite selfish, but genuinely kind of kind of how I view the world and kind of, you know, what I want to achieve, etc. But also the organization's values as well. So I, I kind of pay a lot of attention to that. And in, in some ways, it, the underdog always appeals to me. Somebody who's kind of really, you know, trying to do things differently, trying to kind of innovate in their space as a consultant really matters to me because I think, again, you know, there's so much out there that there's the big four, there's, you know, the slightly kind of more established mature ones. And then there's always kind of somebody who's desperately trying to take their experiences and do something very different with them. And they're the ones that I always get excited by because I again in the world of innovation that's what I want to do I want to be able to say let's do this differently to solve a problem I love the um I love the point about no rule book you know it reminded me I haven't thought about this in years but it reminded me when I set up corporate punk nearly a decade ago the very first blog article I wrote took a line from Van Morrison actually which was no guru no method no teacher and it was all about exactly what you've just said which was let's meet clients where they're at and design with them answers to the very real problems that they've got. And I stand by that to this day, you know, even though we've got products and services that we sell and they're structured in certain ways and so on, the job is not cookie cutter. The job is let's try and meet that client where they're at. Mm. And that comes from values actually, you know, which is the other point that you made. I mean, I always talk about this five values that guide all of my practices, which are integrity, creativity, excellence, mutuality, and grit. <laughs> and the reason I reference those all the time in loads of different contexts is the idea that if we don't have values in common with our clients, as well as the people that we work with, divorce is kind of inevitable. It's just a matter of how much blood gets spilt on the carpet. You've got to find people to work with where you do have those values in common, because if you don't have those values in common, what good looks like to you and what good looks like to somebody else might be completely different things. And that isn't setting any relationship up for anything like success. I think the other part as well is I've, I've always viewed them as like partnerships as well, which I think is probably that point around the values piece is important for me because, you know, sometimes I think often with consultancies, consultants, that it can be, oh, can you, you know, people have often engaged them to do the work that they don't want to do. And it's probably, that's never been my driver of where I've wanted to work with external talent in this way um, is that I want them to solve problems with me um, not just take them and, and and kind of work in their little silos, their vacuums, and then kind of present something back. 
when you're thinking about um, consultants that you're you've worked with or that you're you're maybe planning to work with, in general, do the organisations that you work with and for, David, do they tend to think budget first or that do they think solution first? I, I always start with what's the problem, that what's the work to be done. And often that's where like my mind can go quite quite big and go like, oh yeah, we could do this and it could be like this. And therefore, like, how do we get that help? But I then kind of quickly go, well, I've also got to marry that with the context of where I'm working. And yes, then that becomes a what's realistic and what's possible with budget, attention, maturity of the organization as well. And then it's about a conversation with consultants of, okay, let's cut our cloth accordingly. Like if we, if, if all I can get is this amazing value out of you in this kind of space and at this cost, where best should we begin and end that work and that partnership? And then the other stuff I will figure out. So, you know, it's sometimes I think, you know, I've seen and heard and worked with people where it's like, can you get everything you always want and then just kind of, you know, drill down on the consultant to be like, can you deliver everything still, but like half the cost that it's feasible for? I kind of come from a work of, then there'll just be some things sometimes that we just don't do internally, but I want to find out the value of where the consultant's most and I'd spend my money there versus being a potential blocker of we couldn't do anything with anybody because we can't afford things. So I, I try and kind of come from it from, many angles to make things work. Well, what I hear in what you've just said is it's fundamentally a collaborative process, right? Yeah. That the, you're going, okay, well, we've, we've got certain parameters within which we have to work, like every single organisation, but I want to collaborate and solve a problem with a consultant, which is something like, how do we make best use of the time and money that we've got? Yeah. Which is quite a different approach from what you sometimes hear from other organizations, which is, you know, certainly somebody who sits around the consultant side of the table, you hear these sort of mad things like, give me bronze, silver and gold options and I'll choose which one I want. And you're like, well, you're going to look at the gold one and think that's over-specified for my needs. You're going to look at the bronze one and realize it's not going to get you where you need. And at the same time, you're going to look at the quote-unquote silver one and probably think that's what we wanted to sell you all the way along, all of which doesn't feel either particularly intelligent or nuanced versus what you've just said, which is actually we can have a collaborative problem-solving conversation about how we can bring the best out of each other within the parameters that we've got to work within within the relationship. Yeah. Hundred percent, and you know, and sometimes that's that, that. I think that's also where I think you can get quite creative and collaborative on where you invest with the consultant's expertise versus actually sometimes you've just got to roll your sleeves up and do some stuff yourself as well to make this work. You mentioned earlier on about liking to work with underdogs. So when you've worked with underdogs, and you know, in which I hear innovators, people who like to do things differently. To what extent have you just been prepared to kind of take a flyer or have you needed to build consensus around that internally or has it just taken a lot longer for you to feel comfortable to work with those sorts of organizations? So I guess a couple of things with that. One, internally in roles like the roles that I've done over the years, you've also got to put in the hard yards 
to build the trust and credibility. I think that's part of, you know, your your kind of your colleagues at work in the organization. You've got to be able to, before you start going all rogue and maverick and being like, I've got an idea and we should do this with somebody that nobody else has ever heard of. I think it relies on you being confident with the people, your colleagues, and that they trust you. So I think there's a whole thing that you've got to have laid that foundation. I think the second thing of where I've engaged underdogs, it's also about, you know, taking my own medicine and experimenting, experiment with the underdogs. You know, it's you know, it's the building of that relationship and, you know, building trust with them is, you know, you don't need to go big and bold and do, to your point earlier, the big goal service kind of brief to start with. But I've gone small, like, let's come and experiment. Let's try a little piece. Let's see how you like working with me as well, because they might be like, no, this is too much. You're too crazy. You're too full on. So for me, I've, I've always started small. And that's that's just, as I said, it's, a, it's kind of a reciprocal kind of arrangement in my head. It's like, you know, as much as like, I'm getting to know them, they need to get to know me in the organization. So that's probably been how I've approached it before is let's do like a portion of a brief and then build from there. But you've already rolled the pitch as well internally by making sure that your reputation is one of an innovator, an experimenter, and that's the basis on which you go into organizations and you work in organizations, right? So I suppose what's really interesting about that is the idea that any form of innovation or experimentation, well, failure is always possible. So if there's a built-in tolerance for failure, if you will, in the way that you've actually Mm. set up the relationship, and then you're balancing that with, okay, failure in this case isn't going to cost the organization hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds or dollars or whatever. We're going to start small and just feel our way into this. Mm. That combination of rolling the pitch and starting small sounds like a really good way of getting new and interesting and perhaps more innovative support into an organization. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's like, what's the worst that can happen if we try this? Very Buddhist way of looking at the world, that. The <laughs> Buddhist view would be something like, well, you've done one more spin around the sun. You know more now than you did then. What are you complaining about? You know, mm. and I, I do often think, David, that the world of work would be a little bit more um, pleasant for most people if that uh, philosophy was perhaps a more common one than it is. Mm. Um, so when you're working with a consultancy, then you've got, you've got a relationship, which is up and running. How do you appraise whether or not you're getting value from that relationship as a client? I probably focus more on outcomes. So that's my biggest kind of measure is, you know, we start with the big problem, the brief, what are we going to get from whatever we do? My obsession is like, are we solving the problem? And we'll focus on that outcome, not a lot of the other stuff that sometimes people can slightly over-worry about. One of the things I'm proudest of, I would say, over the last 10 years of independent consulting is I think I can write the number of PowerPoint presentations that I've done on the fingers of two hands. (laughs) Genuinely, I think I can number them on the fingers of two hands because I just don't see it as being in any respect representative of progress. We have people listening to this podcast who are in HR and talent consultancy. 
and you're extremely experienced in this space. And I just wondered if you had any specific advice for people who are looking to engage people who do roles like yours in the kinds of organizations that you work within. My biggest advice is be curious um, going in, engaging with people. Don't try and be like, this is what I do. This is what I sell. This is what I've built. Often, you know, my my biggest kind of turn off, flipping the question a little bit, Phil, is where people come and be like, I've got a ready-made solution. Do you want to buy it? I think you should. Like, I'm like, that. that's done in the world of like, you don't know me. You've got no context about what we're going through and the problems we've got to solve. Like, how how is that a, a good beginning of a, of a conversation? So I think flipping it to be more about who you are, what you're driven by, your curiosity, big questions that you want to solve. Because I think that's the most amazing thing of when people are independent consultants is that they've got freedom to be curious and solve big things. I think the other part, and it sounds, again, quite basic, but, you know, the advice is, you know, network as in, like, who are the people that you've up to this point kind of aligned with that you know are the, the kinds of values, the kinds of, you know, I guess, talent that you want to work with as a consultant and build out from there. I think that the kind of the cold calling days are are over and actually the underdogs that I've partnered with have come through people that I I trust, I admire, that know a little bit about me and kind of go like, ooh, you know, th- there's there's something in this. Don't know what it is, but there's something in this. And then I'm like, oh, God, then, yes, I would love to kind of talk. And, and that's when I get inspired as well. So, I, again, I think for me, it's it's the two, it's those two elements of think about who you are, what you want to solve, and think about the people that you just also love and get, you know, you get a spring in your step from working with or just spending time with. And ultimately, those people will know other people that, you know, will will be like that. David, thank you for coming on the podcast. Amazing. Thanks for having me, Phil. And thanks again to Tina Fijant, who we heard from earlier on. So, what do these conversations tell us about providing value for money? Firstly, clients weigh how much you cost against a range of factors, experience, expertise, skill set, reputation, and cultural fit. All of this influences how well clients believe you can solve their problems. And that capacity to solve problems is where the value lies from their perspective. Secondly, how well you communicate those different factors during the sales process affects the extent to which you are regarded as offering good value for money. So, getting good at articulating them is vital if you want to win business. Then there is the other side of the equation, price. This is a consideration, especially for budget-constrained clients. But price is mutable depending on those other factors. Work I've done with organisational psychologists over the years has absolutely supported this idea. Price influences purchase intent far less than we are conditioned to think it does. Next, it is possible to innovate in how you get rewarded for your services, but be prepared to have to work hard to earn client trust. You also need to protect yourself by identifying metrics that your work directly influences. This points to another key insight, that the task of arriving at the right price should always be a collaborative one. As uncomfortable as money conversations can be, they are vital to ensure that everyone's clear on the value being offered 
and the basis on which the relationship is being set up. Ultimately, it all comes back to honesty. This is key to the question of value for money. Underestimate your services or mislead a client in the hope of clawing back money later and you are setting yourself up for failure. This behaviour undermines trust and the sustainability of the relationship and you need to avoid it. Honesty about money, as uncomfortable as that can be, sets everyone up for success. If you're interested in exploring the question of value for money and you've not already done so, do check out our course, Advance. In it, you will find a range of tools, techniques and ways of thinking that will help you to understand your value and how best to connect it to the world of your clients. It takes every consultancy time to nail this stuff. It took me years. But much of what's on offer in advance should help you no end. If you're on a community or club plan, remember that you are free to discuss any of the themes raised in this podcast in your community circle at any time. For now, I hope that's been useful.